Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Henning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books to recommend this morning. Author Jenny Briscoe is back talking about her favourite reads. And we've got a great episode of Tilly's Fiction Addiction. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books, new releases, bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read. Thank you for joining us today. As usual, it's a packed show. We've got local author J.M. Briscoe talking about how she got into writing fiction and the books that inspire her. Tilly Brogan will be joining us with her latest Tilly's Fiction Addiction, which today will be the hugely popular Achilles song by, sorry, Song of Achilles even, by Madeline Miller. And Julia and I will be flying in luxury and talking about our favourite books that feature aeroplanes. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to stop spot interesting book news. And just in case you've forgotten what you're doing, you're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, please do get in touch with us because we want to hear from you, particularly if you've got a book that you're reading or an author that you're particularly keen on, do let us know. If you're running a book club or you're a local author or indeed a a, a local bookseller, please do get in touch with us. You can drop me a line on julian at river.radio and let me know any news and tidbits you've got and we'll include them in future shows. Please do get in touch yes so let's begin with our roundup of those interesting tidbits (coughs) that we spotted in the press about books now we often talk about book prizes on this uh, on this station and my favorite book prize was shortlisted this week and of course it's a little less to do with the written word and actually more to do with the title of the book they say it's mm-hmm. all in the title. They so, do. So it's the Diagram Prize for the oddest book title of the year. And it's sponsored by the industry magazine, The Bookseller. And legend has it that the award was developed by two guys from Diagram Group, who were a publishing solutions company, as a way to avoid boredom at the annual Frankfurt Book Fair. Now, Julian, you've often been to the annual Frankfurt Book Fair. What's the level uh, of boredom like? I, I have indeed. Well, I think that I think if you're actually um, an exhibitor, a part of a company, it, it's it's um, it's not that boring. It's busy. But I do have to say that um, I have actually been on one of those scout arounds, <laughs> which, which I didn't know is called the Diagram Prize. But I used to go with the chum of mine, John Stakiewicz, and we'd stroll around if we've got 10 minutes or so, spotting some titles. In fact, one of them was on my own publisher's stand, which was Hodder and Stoughton. We had the, um, the academic division edward arnold and and our prize was the design and construction of concrete flooring <laughs> what was going to be a big wow at the fair yes. and what was even funnier but the editor of that series of books was a guy called kenneth so in the office back to the office we used to call him not to his face we used to call him kenny concrete <laughs> <laughs> well, Kenny Concrete in the world of academia actually has got 
a lot to answer for. He has indeed. Because most of the books have got an academic flirt. So the very first winner was way back in 1978, and it was from the University of Tokyo Press. And the title was Proceedings of the Second International Workshop on Nude Mice. I'm not sure what a nude mouse is, mind you, but there you are. And uh, since then, winning titles have been... uh, have been great and glorious and one of my favourite is classic antiqu- classical antiquity in heavy metal music and that was published <laughs> by Bloomsbury yes the uh, current uh, the current holder of this award is a dog pissing at the edge of a path uh, not sure what that's about mind no. you do you think it's a, a training manual or something <laughs> I wouldn't have thought so oh, one of my favourite is uh, American bottom archaeology <laughs> That is really... I don't know what they're digging for there. It really boggles the mind, doesn't it? (laughs) Or or boggles the bottom. uh, That that won in 1993. And uh, 1988, it was Versailles, the view from Sweden. Oh. (laughs) I'm not sure how good good a view you'd get. Yes. (laughs) Anyway. Heavens above. My personal favourite this year is titled, Is is Superman Circumcised? (laughs) <laughs> so we wait with bated breath to find out if that's the winner. And that, is, I mean, it's a really good book, actually. It looks at the Jewish influence on the DC superhero. So oh, right. I'm Gosh. sure it'll be good. Anyway, <laughs> books can be written about anything, can't they? They certainly can, Heather. And in fact, well, not quite in the same vein, but um, some interesting news. A, a new generation of double O agents has been authorised by the estate of Ian Fleming, um, as we know, the author of the James Bond books. Uh, and a Bond uh, aficionado and novelist, Kim Sherwood, has set to pen a new series of audacious pacey and sexy spine stories. Great. Now, the author, yes, indeed. The author, uh, Michelle Wood, um, has said that um, James Bond had been one of her enduring loves of her life ever since she first saw Piers Brosnan die from the dam in Goldeneye. And as a result, she struck a deal with HarperCollins to write three contemporary thrillers set in the world of James Bond, but where the original 007 is missing, presumed captured or even killed. Ah, well, mm. if you've seen the film, spoiler mm. alert, of course. Oh, right. Well, but of I course, haven't. <laughs> there's been lots of uh, great and uh, glorious um, authors who've written uh, James Bond um, books, of course. So yes, I have. Kingsley Amis, uh, mm-hmm. Sebastian Folks, William Boyd, to name just yes, a few. Indeed. So, yes, really, exactly. really good te- yep. keeping alive the, uh, the franchise in books. Now, for all those fans of Richard Osman, and we know there are many of you out there. Indeed, there are. Uh, he's got competition as the very lovely Reverend Richard Coles that I listen to on a Saturday morning uh-huh. on Radio 4. He's written a series of crime novels and have just been bought by Vedem Felton Nicholson. Ah. So his very first one is Murder Before Even Song, which is a twisty whodunit murder in a church. Mm. Now, I'm sure they'll be delightful, but they won't be published until next next June, so something to watch out for.
indeed put a pencil note in your diaries to rush off to your local bookshop and orders. Now, this um, um, there's uh, the uh, word of the year has been announced, uh, and Cambridge, the Cambridge Dictionary has chosen or nominated perseverance, a word that captures up the will of people across the world to never give up despite the many challenges of COVID. 2021. And um, in, in comparison, the Oxford English Dictionary has chosen VAX as its choice for the right. word. Of the- Do you know what the word of the year was last year? No, I can't recall. In fact, I don't know. No, it's pandemic. Oh, oh, well, probably that could have had a stab at that. You really, could have I had suppose. a stab at it. You probably could have guessed that. And finally, one of my favourite authors, Hunter Davis, has just published his 101st book, which is amazing. Good grief. That's quite a catalogue, isn't it? It is. Wow. I first read him when he, uh, he wrote a book about walking along Hadrian's Wall, which is really delightful. He and really is a, he is a good writer. And didn't he used to have a... Did he write a column? Was it in Punch or something? Yes, I, I, he did write a column. Yeah, yeah. He's really good. They're always entertaining. He's a good writer. He is a really lovely writer. And his latest book is called um, Heath, The Life on uh, a Year in the Life of Hampstead Heath. Ah. And uh, very sweetly, every odd-numbered book that he does, and obviously 101st, so that's an odd-numbered mm-hmm. book, the advance that he earns goes straight to a charity close to his heart. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, he's decided that his children doesn't need any of his inheritance. Mm-hmm. And so um, he's giving this, in this case, to a society that promotes local history and nature, which is rather lovely. Well, it is rather lovely, and I hope his children think it's lovely too. I'm sure they're very <laughs> successful in their own I'm right. sure they are. This is River Radio, and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you for listening. Coming up, we're looking at the Song of Achilles in Tilly's Fiction Addiction. But first, I've been talking to the author J.M. Briscoe. Now, you might have remembered we discussed her fabulous new book, The Girl with the Green Eyes, previously. Mm-hmm. It's just been published by Bad Pressing and is a soft sci-fi thriller. And this time, I caught up with Jenny to explore her reading habits and inspirations for the book. Did you realise you wanted to be a writer and in fact you could write as a as a job? Well, I suppose I've always been writing stories since I was a child. I mean, I used to love writing stories for, for English at school and everyone else used to be like, oh no, not another story you have to write. And I was like, yes. But I think the first time I actually wrote a proper kind of novel, I say in inverted commas, was when I was about 12. It was an absolutely horrendous kind of story about twins and very melodramatic. But that was the first time I wrote something kind of a bit longer that had a proper beginning, middle, end, and I actually finished it. And I just remember that sense of achievement, thinking, oh, gosh, I've actually I've actually written a, a story. And I've sort of wrote a few since then. And then obviously I went to Royal Holloway, did my English and creative writing BA. So getting in there is probably what made me realise that I could actually write properly. And then, yeah, I've sort of written on and off. I suppose it's when I was, when I went on maternity leave when my eldest was born. It was eight years ago now. And that's when I finally sort of had the proper time to actually sit and write properly every day when I could. I've been very lucky in that I've sort of had the time and my husband's been very supportive And I've been able to sort of write since then. And then, you know, the last few years has been when I've been really trying to kind of get something published. It was never really an issue finishing a a long piece. It was sort of more, yeah, trying to get it out there, trying to get someone to kind of 
agree with me i suppose you you often you you get an awful lot of interested parties often when you're when you're trying to push a novel out there but it's very difficult to kind of make that step from from interested to being as committed as you are to the story and where it might be where it might be placed yes so the uh, creative writing ba how useful do you think that was really useful i think i mean it was a long time ago now it was uh, 13 years ago that i graduated but i still remember some really sort of core kind of elements of that yeah and I think also what was really useful was that we used to have to write, read out our poems and our short stories and anything that you know you could read out within a class setting we'd all have to do that around a table and then would critique other people's work which sounds quite kind of intimidating but yeah it was really useful because you you know pick up on things or people pick up on things that you just don't see about your own work so it was great and it was also really good for confidence as well because it really gives you the kind of you, you have to have a thick skin and you have to kind of believe that other people will see things that you won't see and encourage you when you might think that something's rubbish so yeah, yeah it was really useful <laughs> Are you in a writing group? Not at the moment, actually. No, I, I probably should look into that. I think that was something I was going to I was going to do. You were saying when we last chatted about your book that it evolved over quite a long period of time. So who had the most influence in, in changing? I don't know, really. I mean, I think I definitely gave a draft of the older version to, to my husband. And I remember him saying it seemed a little bit too complicated to be a, a children's book, which is what it was back then. And I don't know if I, I know my mum's read a lot of my earlier drafts. I don't know if a draft of this one, but she read a draft of a different young adult book I wrote. And she sort of said, I think you would work better as a as an adult writer rather than a young adult or children's writer. So I suppose it's been it's been them really that's had the most influence as readers and, and then as, as the writer it's just been me. And I think it, it really helps to have a bit of distance. If you don't if you leave something alone for a year or two and come back to it, it's so much easier than and looking at it every day because you do you do forget elements and you come back to it and it's almost like reading it from having not read it at all um, you're well you're a different person aren't you in two years time it's uh so you're yeah definitely fresh arm so have you always been a reader yes i've always been a reader i've always loved books since since i could read i think so what sort of authors do you reckon have influenced your one author that sticks in my head is one that i've always loved is philip pullman yes i actually remember reading his dark materials when i was about 11 or 12 i started them when i was about that age which is obviously one of the i think that's the intended age of readership that's the age of the main character and i remember just at that time i just loved them for the the sort of story the adventure you know you've got this really kind of charismatic heroine and she does all these amazing things so I thought sort of thought that was that was really good and then I wrote, read it again a few years later as an older reader and that's when I think I kind of really appreciated what he was trying to say about all these different like quite grown-up concepts and that's also when I, I fell in love with the kind of mother-daughter dynamic I think a lot of my inspiration has come from from the, that trilogy in terms of the kind of mother-daughter dynamic you see in The Girl with the Green Eyes yes. and the next two books I think it's very important to have the kind of child character at that kind of coming of age time and she sort of realizes that her mother is not maybe this I don't know this this kind of 
be all and end all that she's always thought she is yeah so definitely he's had a lot of influence on my on my writing really good choice there (laughs) so what are you reading at the moment i've actually just finished reading sister song which is by lucy holland that's a release from this year and actually funnily enough i went to university with lucy um, went to roll away with her yeah so i'd sort of seen that i'd follow her on on twitter and and facebook and i've sort of seen that she had a book out this year and it was getting a lot of good attention so I thought oh, I'll, I'll give that a whirl and actually it's absolutely brilliant it, I can't praise it highly enough it's a sort of historical fiction but it's got a lot of fantasy woven in there it's got a few other elements that just make it amazing it's a really good book fantastic I'll definitely put that out as a recommendation so do you definitely. find it difficult to read at the same time as you're writing or does it does it help I do find it kind of helps in a way I, I never really I don't really read during the day I always read like in bed last thing before I go to sleep and I sort of yeah sometimes I find that if I'm reading sort of a thriller then sometimes you know I find that the next day I'm kind of thinking more in terms of pacey kind of plots and 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 things like that and I'm also a little bit influenced by what I'm watching on the tv sometimes as well if I'm watching something quite dramatic or quite sort of yeah again pacey it kind of works its way into to how I'm thinking at the time sometimes I don't find it influences me too much apart from just sort of thinking god I wish I could write like that or <laughs> wow I, I see what she's done there I wish yeah I should probably have done something a bit more <laughs> a bit more like that it's interesting you're talking about you watching um, television for inspiration because obviously it's all stories but I do think the girl with the green eyes would make a great tv or a film it's uh, it's we've got that pace I hope so and I think that there's so many amazing tv shows on at the moment so many amazing networks putting out uh, incredible content that I think you know tv is the thing to aim for now which is funny 10 years ago it was all been about films and you know making a block buster but yeah no definitely i'd love to see it on tv yeah we'll have to see how we can make that happen <laughs> and so what would be your great recommendation for a good uh, a good read i also really enjoyed the midnight library i read that quite recently really enjoyed because it's a bit like with mine it's sort of it's sci-fi but it doesn't feel like traditional sci-fi so it's quite sort of it's accessible for other reasons it's definitely yeah, quite... a soft sci-fi Yes, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So those two, definitely. Yeah, I've not heard that phrase "soft sci-fi" before. So I think it's really interesting that you've introduced that concept to me because I think there's lots of books out there that are soft sci-fi and soft fantasy that we just don't see as those two genres. We just read them as just great books. I think something that I've learned over having written this book and kind of researching the genre a bit more is that a lot of people are quite, they can be quite discriminatory against sci-fi and fantasy and obviously obviously other genres as well and they can be quite set in their ways like no I don't like anything like that I'm not going to read that because it's sci-fi I don't like you know magic and I don't like sort of you know whatever. And I think that that's something that should be should be stopped. Really, I think that you know you should break down the the walls between the genres and say, look, this is just a good book yes. about whatever, and and that's why you should try it. So yeah, I've definitely tried to expand my reading horizons since since writing this book because I was a bit like that. I sort of didn't think I really liked sci-fi books until I wrote one yeah. so, and, and then I've, I've discovered some amazing sci-fi books since then definitely people should not judge a book by its genre <laughs> yes I def- definitely agree with that <laughs> okay thank you very much indeed and good luck with your book thank you. thanks very much <laughs> 
The Girl with Green Eyes by J.M. Briscoe is published by Bad Press Inc. and is available now and is a thoroughly recommended read. Um, Also books recommended by Jenny include Philip Pullman's Dark Material Trilogy and Sister Song by Lucy Holland, the reimagining of an old British folklore ballad with a wonderfully fresh twist. And it's interesting that she was recommending Sister Song because that book is described as perfect for readers of Madeleine Miller who, uh-huh. uh, of course, has written The Song of Achilles, which took a Greek myth and reimagined it. So I caught up with Tilly Brogan to discuss this book in the latest episode of Tilly's Fiction Addiction. Morning. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you very much for having me. So you've chosen Madeleine Miller's Song of Achilles this week, which was have indeed published way back in 2011, but has been recently seen a surge up the bestseller list as millions of TikTok videos are being liked. I read there was about 19 million. I think that's been overtaken now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's showing people talking about the book and crying about the ending. Yeah. How, how did you discover the book? I actually discovered it on Bookstagram. It was constantly recommended to me. Everyone was like, you should read this, you should read this. And I haven't stopped recommending it to people after as well. I read it and I was like, right guys, if you've not read this, you need to. I think it's just like a constant cycle. But I also did see it on TikTok as well. So TikTok and Bookstagram, I was like, right, going to give it a go. And um, it did not disappoint. Amazing. Brilliant. Now, I've got to ask, have you actually done a TikTok yourself of this No, I haven't. I haven't. Tilly. I need to. I know. I need to get on it. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm still recovering, though. I'm still emotionally recovering to talk about it, you know. That's a good good reason, then. So how much (laughs) of the Greek myth do you need to know before you read the book? I didn't actually have any experience with Greek myths. I did Oedipus Rex at school. And that was it. But I didn't actually know the stories of Achilles. And so, yeah, I didn't know it. Went into it completely blind. I didn't know the ending, which is the most important thing. And I think if you know the story of Achilles, you know the ending and what happens. So that was like a triple gut punch. And everyone was like, well, if you knew the story, you knew what was going to happen. And I was like, I didn't know the story. I wasn't prepared for that. But I don't think you need to have read the story to enjoy the book. And like I said, I think it adds a bit more as well, because you are not prepared for what happens. Okay. So in a sentence what's the book about oh let's say a queer retelling of a classic greek legend that is as beautifully written as it is heart-wrenchingly tragic right (laughs) that's good that's good there's been a bit of controversy about the queer retelling side of things yeah i think it adds to the story takes away or just makes no difference because it's a love story come what may well from my perspective, I think when I read a book and it's based off a myth or based off reality, I will always go and do some research after just because I'm an inquisitive person. Ah. And there's been lots of historians that did say that Achilles and Patroclus were lovers and were together. And I think it goes back to the whole erasing of queer representation and queer couples in history, especially in Greek myths and also women, queer women as well, lots of erasure through history. So I don't really think it's added in randomly. I think she's just telling the truth and she's like saying, well, 
you know, it's the whole thing. And they were roommates and, oh, they were just friends and things like that. And I'm like, no, they actually were together. So I'm a, I'm a big believer that it is factually accurate. Right. Of course. Okay. Yeah. Yes. True. True to the myth. True to, true the, to the myth. True story. to the story. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you've said in a sentence what the book about. So give us a little bit more pudding. Give me a little bit more idea of the the summary of the story. So it's an adaptation of Homer's Iliad, ad, as told through the perspective of Patroclus. So it follows Patroclus and his relationship with Achilles from their initial meeting, and then sort of through the Trojan War. And it focuses on their romantic relationship. So it's like half and then half romantic relationship. It starts when they are um, both young boys. And I think it goes up to when they're late 20s, early 30s. So it's like the whole shebang, the whole timeline. You feel like you are with them and every step of the way. Right. So you get the excitement of the Trojan War. If you yes, like you do. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, obviously, if you read Greek myths and Greek legends, it is quite war heavy. And as far as I know, like I said, I haven't studied Greek legends and Greek myths. It is pretty true to the myth and the plot as well. Yeah, there's a lot of going back to the myths and sort of like and an exploring them and bringing them to a new audience. So Achilles isn't a natural choice for a romantic hero. So what is it about the character of Achilles that draws you into this book? I think because it's through the perspective of Patroclus. It's more about his relationship with him. So Achilles is very much like a super hard exterior and sort of like leave me alone for the rest of the world. But with Patroclus, he's a super softy. And I think you see a different side of him through Patroclus's eyes. And also because Achilles has to be this hero because the Greek gods say it's his destiny, it's heartbreaking to know that that's the ending that he's going to have and the sacrifices he will make. So you feel sorry for him, but I really think it changes the whole dynamic seeing him through Patroclus's eyes. You see the different sides of him. So that's right. He's an interesting hero for sure. And Patroclus, is he a good hero? Is he is he one of the um, good guys? He is. It's because obviously Achilles is half Greek god. So Patroclus isn't, and he's uh, more of the mortal. So it's interesting. Mere mortal, like us all. (laughs) So it's interesting because he gets treated so differently to Achilles because he's immortal. But quite a lot of the story, you know, when you know two characters are in love, but they don't know themselves, and it's the whole thing, Achilles yelling at anyone when they sort of look down on Patroclus because he is immortal. You sort of sense that he's in love with him, but he doesn't know himself. So it's a nice... It's a nice change up when you think, you know, Patroclus is a hero, even though he's mortal, but in a different way to Achilles as a hero because he's half Greek god. Right. Are there any female characters? Any female standout characters? Yes. So Bryces is one of my favourite characters. So she comes in about halfway, maybe just a bit over. So it's when the Greeks are raiding the Trojan countrysides and they're um, set up in the outskirts. And Briseis was given as a war prize to Achilles. And basically Patroclus urges Achilles to claim her because otherwise one of the Greek soldiers will claim her and rape her. Patroclus and Achilles are together. So we're going to grab her. So someone, no one else does anything horrible to her. And they all become, they all become friends. And they basically, um, I think they teach her Um, how to speak in um, the native language that they speak in. They basically school her and they just let her walk around in the camp as as a woman and as a person rather than as a war prize, which is what she was obviously brought to 
Achilles for. Yeah, so she's super strong while she's living in the camp. So when Achilles is away doing war things, doing hero things, herself, Patroclus, teach and care for the other Trojan women that are captured. And whenever he can, Achilles will claim these women and then bring them back to this little corner of the camp and set them up and let them live as women and not as war prizes. So I think she's a really cool character. She's also the first person who sees how great Patroclus is because, like I said, people look down on him because he's... And also people say, oh, Achilles is the better one. You know, it's all about Achilles. But she doesn't like Achilles. She thinks he's a bit of a (laughs) very stuck-up character, doesn't like him, thinks he's too proud. So it's an interesting dynamic because you're seeing someone who thinks Patroclus is better than Achilles rather than Achilles is better than Patroclus. So I think she, she adds a dynamic for sure. And that's really good, isn't it? Because everybody has got their own strengths and weaknesses. So that character is coming in. Of course, yeah is really sort of putting a highlight, a spotlight. Yeah, she she does change the whole dynamic a bit, yeah. Brilliant. Now, you've chosen a little part of the book that we're going to listen to. So before we do that, can you just introduce the uh, the section that we uh, will have a reading from? It's about a third of the way through. So I think the boys are 17-ish, maybe a bit younger, and they are discussing their relationship. And then suddenly a messenger comes for them and declares that Achilles must fulfill his destiny to go to war. So it's sort of like a bit of a contrast of discussing their relationship and, you know, how they've changed since they were younger. And then it's all bliss. And then um, you realise actually Achilles does have to do this. It sort of sets up the next chapter, the next stage of the book, this messenger coming and telling him, get out of your honeymoon phase. We have to go to war. Right, let's listen to that now. Thank you. His eyes opened. Name one hero who was happy. I considered. Heracles went mad and killed his family. Theseus lost his bride and father. Jason's children and new wife were murdered by his old. Bellerophon killed a chimera but was crippled by the fall from Pegasus' back. You can't. He was sitting up now, leaning forward. I can't. I know. They never let you be famous and happy. He lifted an eyebrow. I'll tell you a secret. Tell me. I loved it when he was like this. I'm going to be the first. He took my palm and held it to his. Swear it. Why me? Because you're the reason. Swear it. I swear it, I said, lost in the high colour of his cheeks, the flame in his eyes. I swear it, he echoed. We sat like that a moment, hands touching. He grinned. I felt I could eat the world raw. A trumpet blew somewhere on the slopes beneath us. It was abrupt and ragged, as if sounded in warning. Before he could speak or move, he was on his feet, his dagger out, slapped up from the sheath on his thigh. It was only a hunting knife, but in his hands it would be enough. He stood poised, utterly still, listening with all of his half-god senses. I had a knife too. Quietly, I reached for it and stood. He had placed himself between me and the sound. I did not know if I should go to him, stand beside him with my own weapon lifted. In the end, I did not. It had been a soldier's trumpet, and battle, as Chiron had so bluntly said, was his gift, not mine. The trumpet sounded again. We heard the swish of underbrush, tangled by a pair of feet. One man. Perhaps he was lost, perhaps in danger. Achilles took a step towards the sound. As if in answer, the trumpet came again. Then a voice bawled up the mountain. Prince Achilles! We froze. Achilles, I am here for Prince Achilles! 
Birds burst from the trees, fleeing the clamour. From your father, I whispered. Only a royal herald would have known where to call for us. Achilles nodded, but seemed strangely reluctant to answer. I imagined how hard his pulse would be beating. He had been prepared to kill a moment ago. We are here, I shouted into the cupped palms of my hand. The noise stopped for a moment. Where? Can you follow my voice? He could, though poorly. It was some time before he stepped forward into the clearing. His face was scratched and he sweated through his palace tunic. He knelt with ill grace, resentfully. Achilles had lowered the knife, though I saw how tightly he still held it. Yes, his voice was cool. Your father summons you. There is urgent business at home. I felt myself go still, as still as Achilles had been a moment before. If I stayed still enough, perhaps we have not had to go. What sort of business? Achilles asked. The man had recovered himself somewhat. He remembered he was speaking to a prince. My lord, your pardon. I do not know all of it. Messengers came to Peleus from Mycenae with news. Your father plans to speak tonight to the people and wishes you to be there. I have horses for you below. There was a moment of silence. Almost, I thought, Achilles would decline. But at last he said, Patroclus and I will need to pack our things. When you look back at the book, uh, what did you learn? What surprised you the most when you're reflecting back on the book? I think it's the most beautiful prose. It's honestly written like poetry. The whole thing is just stunning. And it is a bit jarring to begin with because obviously when you read, it's not necessarily fantasy, but when you read sort of YA books or retellings, especially books that involve war, they're not as beautifully written. They're very state the fact, multiple character arcs. Whereas the whole thing is just, it's just like one long poem. It's just absolutely stunning. I didn't think I would enjoy a Greek retelling. If I'm honest, this was on my to read list for a while. It was recommended by a lot of people before I finally picked it up. But I honestly, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. And it was nice to meet the other characters and learning more about the Iliad at the same time. And like I was saying before, I really like the retelling of the two boys and their relationship because lots of history and historians, lots of like queer erasure in Greek myths and Greek legends. So it's nice to shine the spotlight on it and, you know, give a different perspective, even though I believe that they were together. <laughs> historians said they were just friends, that sort of thing. But yeah, so Madeline Miller's, like I said, not the first person to say that they were more than friends, but I think she's the first person to write an amazing book about it and just demonstrating just how wrong people are that just think they're mates. Yeah. And there's no reason why she isn't right. And the other historians are totally wrong. So yeah, 100%. <laughs> so has this inspired you to read other books about Greek myths? Yes, it has actually. I do quite like the retellings. I think if I just read a Greek myth or like a translated copy, it would be very hard. So I do like when authors use it and do their own spin on it. I think that's really good. So yeah, I am inspired. And if anyone's got any recommendations, feel free to uh, message me on Instagram with those and just let me know. Excellent. I'm sure we can rustle up some some of those. So what are the main tropes that the book has? Great prose, beautiful prose, a Greek retelling, obviously, but in the best sort of way. I think obviously Greek Greek myths and Greek legends are quite heavy. And I feel like this has all the main points, but like I said, just beautifully written and it doesn't miss out anything, doesn't lose any of the, of the greatness of the war. 
There's twists, turns, prophecies, legacies, and there is a queer relationship that will melt your heart and then break into a thousand pieces. Did you cry? I did cry and I never cry. I honestly have only cried at three things in my 23 years of existence and I bawled like a baby at this. It really, really shocked me how much this this tore my heart out. Great. Well, that's a, that's a, a great recommendation. So if you I, yeah, some... I recommend that every single person read this on that note. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Uh, in addition to the Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, here are some recommendations from Tilly and all those who are interested in retelling of Greek myths. Pat Barker's Silence of the Girls, based on the Iliad and told from the female perspective, which has been published by Penguin. And of course, Ariadne by Jennifer Saint, which is the retelling of Theseus and the Minotaur, uh, published by Wildlife Wildfire. Uh, and Athena's Champion by David Hare, a fantasy retelling following Theseus, and it's available from Canelo. Now, Canelo is uh, quite a new paperback publisher and got some really interesting uh, titles. So uh, look out for all sorts of books from Canelo, but particularly Athena's Champion by David Hare. Yeah, that's that's really, I've got to say, that's really good. It's the first one of a trilogy and they're, they're fabulous. Super. So do you, do you cry at books? Um Julia? Um, now I'm trying to think. Um, I cry in films, films, but I'm trying to think about. It. No, I think there are some times when you, you when you find a moving passage, but I can't think of anything particular at the moment. Um, I, I was crying last night. I was reading Robert Galbraith's uh, latest book, so that's obviously a crime book. <laughs> ah, right. Troubled well, I'm, blood. <laughs> well, I'm I'm rereading um, Rumpel, Rumpel Returns. Oh, and there's nothing but giggles. Nothing but giggles in that. No, that's true. There's not not a lot to cry about over not Rumpel. Really. <laughs> but I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, get me a tissue. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Yes, indeed. <laughs> a plane is a fabulous setting for a novelist, and it seems especially a thriller novelist. It brings together a wide range of people in a potentially dangerous situation and ripe for exploitation by a writer who's looking to add some suspense into his novels. And there's also a potential for a wide spectrum of luxury and sophistication, from either drafty army planes to luxury private jets that we can only dream about. And Julian, I think you're going to start with a taste of luxury, aren't you? Yes, I am, because the book I've chosen is a particular favourite of mine, and it's called Beyond the Blue Horizon, On Track of Imperial Airways, and it's written by Alexander Freighter. And it was first published in 1986 by William Heinemann and Hardback, before being published in paperback by Penguin Books in 1987. Pan Macmillan very sensibly reissued it under its Picador imprint in 2005, and that's the edition that's still available. So obviously quite a popular book, it's been reprinted so often yes and i, I, I really so and and because it really is a, a very interesting book because what what alexander freighter has done in it he's charts the eastern empire service which imperial airways flew from britain initially from croydon airport all the way to australia which in its day was the longest and most adventurous route in existence Mm-hmm. And what he's done, he's he's taken the entire route and he's travelled the route. So obviously he's doing it in 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 the twentieth century. Yeah. So um, you know, obviously it, it, it it's a lot faster. But he's he's literally um, replicated every section of the route. 
Um, most of the most of the sections are covered by commercial flights at the moment, but uh, where a flight is not available between two points, mm. uh, what the author has done, he's then recreated. He's he's then gone by land to that to that town oh, or right. city, uh, just to make the connection before doubling back to pick up a flight. Right. <laughs> And goes on. And uh, the route um, was developed over a 20-year period, which started in 1921, when the RAF ran a weekly mail service between Cairo and Baghdad. Uh, Imperial Airways took over the service in 1927, extending it to include Basra, and then started to add other destinations on the way. So, for example, um, they then extended the service to Karachi, which started in 1929. Now, Unbelievably, well, not unbelievably, um, but that trip took seven days to complete London to Karachi. Now, partly because there was a bit of a complicated routing coming through Europe because the passengers were first flown to Basel, where they then took a train to Genoa and then a Calcutta flying boat service of Imperial Airways that took took them to Alexandria. Then they had to get onto a train to go to Cairo to catch the Imperial Airways service to Karachi yeah. and then beyond after that. But what I th- what I love about the book is there's all sorts of interesting bits and pieces in there. And Alexander Freighter points out that once the passengers, the British passengers, boarded their Imperial Airways flight in Cairo, they were confident in the knowledge that most, if, well, practically all the territory yeah. um, from Cairo to Sydney over which they flew was under British control. Oh, of course, yes. Yes. Now, the exception to that was Siam, which is now Thailand, and Batavia, which is now Indonesia. And the reason for that is uh, the former um, Siam was never colonised by a Western power, and Batavia was under Dutch control. And it is, it's a great book to read, it really is. I mean, the, the author describes um, how meals were served in the early days, and often the aircraft would land in a desert, right. and uh, the the stewards would then get tables and chairs out from the aircraft and place <laughs> them out, tablecloths and everything else. And so there would only be... Oof, not maybe a handful or, or fewer passengers yes, because yeah. obviously only the rich would fly yes. and they'd probably be senior civil servants mainly and and, and maybe their memsabs as well um and they'd place it and then they would proceed to serve them roast beef and yorkshire pudding under the blazing sun oh my goodness no absolutely but my, my favorite bit of the book describes the arrival of the magnificent handy page hannibal class aircraft at the mahatta fort rest house in the trucial state of Sharjah. Now, this magnificent rest house was built to accommodate the newly inaugurated London to Australia airmail service, which started on the 1st of October, 1932. Now, the rest house was built as a fort, an an impressive square building, huge building with four towers on each side. Yeah. The main feature were two massive um, doors that opened at the front of the fort. And... The huge courtyard within, and then uh, another set of doors um, at the other side. Yeah. And then on the side was accommodation. So what would happen was the aeroplane would, would land, and the doors would then be swung open, and the aircraft would be pushed into... Gosh. Now, this is a massive aircraft. Yes. Would be pushed into the courtyard, and the wow. and the gates were closed, and which I'll explain the reason why. So the doors were closed. The passengers would then disembark and spend the night in the rest house. They'd have their dinner, they'd have a lovely bed, and the luxury of bathrooms. And then at five in the morning, maybe earlier, they would be called up <clears throat> to re-embark for their next stage of the journey. <clears throat> 
<clears throat> pardon me, the set of the next set of doors would then be opened and the mighty Hercules would be pushed out onto the airstrip ready to continue its journey. Now, all of this was quite necessary because the arrival and departure in the early days could be quite alarming because the local Bedouin tribes used to come chasing after the aeroplane <laughs> it was coming to land on their horses shooting at it. <clears throat> So it was necessary to, well, to, get, to put the aircraft in, in inside the fort at night because otherwise they'd have the pot shots at it. Yeah. Anyway, Imperial Airways came up with a very good idea and they said they decided that they, they found the, the nearest local Bedouin tribe and they paid them right. to act as sort of policemen. So then they would chase off any other Bedouins who tried to take pot shots yeah. at the airplane as it came and went. Now, I believe this, the fort still exists. It's out in the desert in Sharjah, but I think it's abandoned. When I used to travel the Middle East, I kept promising myself that, you know, I'd try and go out and, and, and find it, but I never did. <clears throat> oh, that would have been fantastic. Now, absolutely amazing. I mean, that's really, it's, it's, it's incredible. Now, intermixed with the history of, of, of the Imperial Airways Service, the author enlivens the book with, with, with characters he meets and sees, or in one case, he thinks he sees, which was Idi Amin in Cairo Airport. And the reason why he thought he saw him was because everybody thought he was in exile somewhere. Oh, and right. they were talking about themselves as to if it was him. And then also thinking of stories such as the burning down of the famed Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo, where in fact the author does say, and that's the other thing he tries to do, he tries to stay in hotels that were available at the time. And Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo in its day was very, very famous, a bit like Raffles in Singapore. Yes. The, the current one is a shade of its former self. And the reason being is that it was actually, it was burnt down um, by a, um, um, a mob who were agitating against the corrupt regime of King Farouk, who reportedly... Um, saw the city burger going up in flames from his terrace of his palace and then just returned to the dining table to finish the pudding. Oh like Nero fiddling <laughs> yeah, whilst Rome burns. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I really, really can recommend the book, uh, not only for the nostalgia of, of air travel in the 1920s and 30s, but also the geography, the history. I mean, talks about the Trucial States, all sorts of things. And, and the fact that the Trucial States were, in fact, governed by the British government in India. So the currency was the rupee, the Indian rupee, oh throughout goodness. what we know as the Middle East, so yes. Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and so forth. So things like that is really good. And the history. And by the way, the journey time from London to Sydney in those days took, how long do you think? Uh, well, I don't know. So 26 days. 26. 26 days. A far cry. A month. 20, wow. Yeah, yeah. A far cry from the 26 or 27 hours that it, it takes to complete a London to Sydney run now. Oh, it would be better to be 26 because then it sort of like connects. Well, exactly. It? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. That's amazing. I yeah. think that's the sort of book you should you should have written. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, I, I suppose so. But Mr. Freighter got there first. Yes. Dash. <laughs> Might need a rewrite. <laughs> yeah, good idea. <laughs> so as you've done a non-fiction book, I've thought, well, I've got to do a fiction book. And who better to pick than Agatha Christie? Now, I haven't picked Agatha Christie because uh, I wanted to, did want to talk about a modern book, but I can't resist just mentioning that Agatha Christie, did you know that she was a huge fan of air travel? She took her first flight when she was 21 in 1911. Gosh. And then did a grand tour, which incorporated Australia. And the Middle East and Gosh, Canada. Well, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, South Africa. Yeah. But unfortunately, not on an aeroplane, I don't think. She did right. it on a... Right. 
But, well, of course, she 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 did um, go out to the Middle East with um, to join her second husband, Sir Max Malawan, who's the archaeologist. That's right. Yes. Yes. So now, but I do believe she did quite a bit of that on the Orient Express, which probably uh, gave her yes. the um, get inspiration for that, and probably also being in the Middle East because she did certainly one, if not two, uh, murder mysteries in the Middle East, didn't she? As yes. well. Yes, and I think yeah. obviously her her grand tour, which took ten months, basically gave her loads of ideas. For, yeah. uh, for stories yeah. and uh, I do think her book which I'm going to call Wasp Wasp on a Plane after Snake <laughs> on a Plane of course I'm yeah. oh, not right. sure yes. there's a book about Snake on the Plane but uh, Agatha Christie didn't call it Wasp on the Plane she called it Death in the Clouds mm-hmm. and it's a Hercule Poirot book where uh, there is of course a wasp on a plane and somebody has died with a little mm. bit of a sting on her yes. neck and uh, Poirot has to use his little grey cells to work out. Anyway, I'm not talking about that book. I have chosen a debut novel which was published this summer. Uh, ah. The author was called T.J. Newman, and it was published by Simon and & Schuster. And she got a seven-figure advance, which I've got to say is pretty impressive. That uh, certainly is. It's Gosh. called Falling... And it was a thrilling, thrilling blockbuster read from this summer. So it's been described at, as Jaws at 35,000 feet. <laughs> so just imagine, just imagine you've just boarded a flight to New York. Yes. There are 143 other passengers on board. Mm-hmm. And what you don't know is that 30 minutes before the flight, the pilot's family was kidnapped. And so for his family to live, everyone on the plane has to die. So the only way the family will survive is if the pilot follows his orders and crashes the plane. Enjoy the flight. That does put you off flying, actually, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? So Tori Newman, who's the author, uh, she's actually a flight attendant. And she works on the red-eye flights between Los Angeles and New York. So normally when she's... Uh, flying everyone's asleep so she got the idea when she was standing at the front of the plane looking out at the passengers mostly all asleep and considering Mm. the power the responsibility that the pilot has um how vulnerable that would make him to pressure of one sort or another Mm. um and because she's of course a flight attendant it also means that she's got a real knowledge of of the situation and um the books had fabulous reviews calling it a tense, convincing thriller, stunning and relentless, and a must for holiday read. Although if you've flown somewhere on holiday and then pick up this book, I'm not sure how you'd get home. No. And, and certainly, yes, certainly, or, or are you reading it on the way to your holiday? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it sounds quite... Well, it sounds brilliant premise. Cause yes. <clears throat> when you think about it. But mm. anyway... I think those are the books best avoided to take on a plane with you, I think, really. Yes. yes. That's for you a want something holiday. soothing. Yes, definitely. <clears throat> yes. Oh, well, um, we're, we, we, we've got some other little bits and pieces, um, uh, other books uh, to do with planes. And, of course, one, um, one character who springs to mind is um, the very, very famous Biggles. <clears throat> oh, yes. Pardon me, yes. Have you ever Biggles. read a Biggles book? <clears throat> I haven't, I must confess. And I'll tell you the reason, I did start when I was uh, when I was a boy, and I don't know why, um, pardon me, 
maybe why why I didn't pursue it. I'm not quite sure. Maybe there are other things that sort of um, um, took my attention. But they were writ- written by well, uh, W. E. Johns or William Earl Johns, yes. um, uh, as his full name is, and he was actually a First World War pilot, um, and he. Um, always wrote really under the uh, under the pen name of captain w e johns um and of course his his main um character is biggles I mean, in fact, he wrote over 160 books, but 100 of those were Biggles adventures. Um, and the first one was The Camels Are Coming. Now, this is nothing to do with, um, I don't think to do with um, the desert and such. It's actually, oh, yeah. the, it refers to the Sopwith Camel oh, aircraft, yes. which is a little biplane. And that was published in, ni- in 1932, the first one. And then he would continue to write Biggles books until his death in 1968. Wow, how many did mm. that? Did he do that? Well, it was it was a hundred in total of the Biggles, but he managed to you know, knock out one hundred and sixty books all all together. So there were sixty non Biggles books. So that was so that's you know pretty pretty impressive um, catalogue of, of of writing to get through to do yeah. all that um, up until nineteen sixty eight. But of course, one of my favourite titles, um, which is one of the joke ones, a, a title that really doesn't exist, but it's um, uh, Biggles flies undone. <laughs> <laughs> no, might, I don't think that. Some, some might have to think about that one, but <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I was reading that uh, Bigglesy Johns uh, he employed working class character as an equal member of the Biggles team, which was a bit sort of risque Ooh, at the time. Yes. So that was Ginger for any of your oh, Biggles. Oh, Ginger, fans. of course, Ginger, yes. Ginger Hebblethwaite. It's a great ah, Yorkshire name. Oh, in fact, he yes. was Northumberland. From, he was a Northumberland miner stock. Ah. Um which is charming, actually. Yes, it is. Yes, Ginger, of course, Ginger. Forgot about Ginger. Yeah. 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 So, and I've got another one, which oh, yes. is um, <laughs> Chris Humphreys. Now, I've got to admit, he's a friend of mine. Oh, right. But okay. he has written a brilliant book called Chasing the Wind, which oh, is about mm-hmm. an aviatrix. Oh, yes. Very good. And there's a brilliant, the first scene is absolutely amazing because um, she runs off and steals a plane because she right. can. Yes. Because uh, her father is involved, is based in New York, and he's involved in the stock market collapse in the 20s. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. obviously traumatic. <laughs> and it's a really exciting uh, scene. And she goes off and um, grabs a little biplane and... Um, starts um, getting involved in smugglers and things like that. Ooh. Really exciting book. Yes. Um, Chasing the Wind is um, is great. It's published Excellent. a few years ago. Excellent. Um, but uh, we've got one more thing um, to add. Well, actually, we've got probably a couple. No, we haven't. It is one more thing. And it's actually The Crocodile Hunter by Gerald Seymour. Um, oh, yeah. And it's just been chosen as a paperback of the week uh, and, and the Sunday Times. And um, the MI5 analyst Jonas Merrick is charged with spotting jihadis re-entering Britain and tracks one such fighter after he comes ashore in Kent in a boat full of re- migrants. The review says this topical tale shows that Seymour hasn't lost his journey eye for the stories behind the news nor his masterful writing which is very very true now you have a chance to meet up with with um, gerald seymour and listen to him um and how his work um has influenced his books because on friday the 26th of november he will be in conversation at pinder hall in cookham 
Um, there are a few tickets left, uh, which you can purchase by visiting the website, which is, get your pencil ready and a piece yes. of paper, www.cookhamfestival.co.uk. And I'm sure it's going to be an absolutely fantastic evening. Yes, it will be. I think so. And yeah, because I, I think all those little those little author sessions, because you were saying um, uh, last week or the week before, sorry, that you, you went to one. It was absolutely fantastic, wasn't it? Oh, you, with you, Nick, Horn- Nick Hornby. Yeah, yeah. With Nick Hornby, yes. And yeah, I think they're really absolutely. well worth worth going because I think they're always because if it's in conversation because I, I, I imagine that um, Mr Seymour will 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 be um, I suppose interviewed by and, he'll and be he'll interviewed chat. but also you can ask your own questions <laughs> which is great yes which is yeah so you yeah, can get the yeah. story behind the book yeah which I think is always adds a nice little twist yes it does yeah it does and I was reading in the press this morning on a totally different front. Mm-hmm. But do you remember, there's a really cheesy um, Christmas song that comes out on a regular basis uh, by Lad Babies about Greg's Ooh. sausage rolls and things. No, I'm I don't not, know I'm that I'm not going to sing it to you. It's, <laughs> it's ter- I'm saying it's terrible. They do it for charity. It's a husband right. and wife team. And they, re- they rewrite famous famous songs right they, oh i see and they, okay. they add sausage rolls and greggs <laughs> into it and then they get dressed up they video it it's all the money they raise is for charity so it's an absolutely fabulous uh reason to do it and anyway lo and behold what popped into my uh email this morning was they've now written a book so it's called uh, Greg the Sausage Roll, Santa's Little Helper. Ah, excellent. <laughs> so it's a Christmas book. <laughs> it's uh, published by Puffin. Oh, right. Oh, really gosh, a children's publisher. Absolutely oh, right. really big publisher behind <laughs> it. And it's debuted in the UK official top 50 number one spot. Super. Today. Excellent. And, that and, that, and, and, and that'll be a charity um, thing as well. <laughs> I don't know for sure, but okay, I'm, but right. certainly I'm sh- all their songs are, so I can't <laughs> right. imagine it won't be. Yeah. Uh, but how fabulous. Yeah. What a, what a lovely little idea for a, a stocking filler. Maybe yes. Just, yeah, pop that. Yes. Excellent. Well, Along with the Greg Sausage Roll, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Although talking about a stocking filler, um, our very favourite poet. Uh, oh, yes. Now, who could that be, I wonder? Yes, I wonder. So Does we- it, uh, initials MB? You were spot on. <laughs> so Mike Burton, um, radio presenter on uh, River Radio, he does the Saturday morning show um, yes, with Bruce, indeed. his Dalmatian dog. Yes. Well, Bruce has been hard at work with uh, ably helped by Mike, of course. And uh, Mike's got a book out called Peter the Polar Bear. Excellent. Based on a whole series of um, stories. And in fact, Mike will be joining us next week uh, to talk about this book, which would make a fabulous stocking filler. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got it in my hand now. It's just absolutely charming. And it's (coughs) $5.99. Okay, lovely. (laughs) 
Well, um, our hour is almost up. And so a, a, a very big thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. And thanks also to author J.M. Briscoe with her thrilling book, The Girl with Green Eyes, published by Bad Press Inc. and available in all good bookshops now. To Tilly Brogram for her fiction addiction recommendation, Madeline Miller, um, Songs and uh, Songs of Achilles, and to Mike Burton for his reading. Now, other books that we've been recommending today are The Heath, My Year on Hampstead Heath by Hunter Davis, published by Apollo. Beyond the Blue Horizon, On Track of Imperial Airways by Alexander Freighter, published by Pan Macmillan. Agatha Christie, Death in the Clouds. Falling by TJ Newman, published by Simon & Schuster. And any of the Biggles books, you can choose any one of the hundred by Captain W.E. Johns and find out what Biggles and his chum Ginger are up to. You can't go wrong with any of them. Absolutely. You're listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, any great book recommendations, if you run a local book club or are a local author, then just get in touch. So you can contact me on heather at river.radio with any of your book news. And do keep listening as uh, we have got Let's Talk Business on at one o'clock today. We look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 noon uh, when Chantelle from the Little Bookshop in Cookham will be joining us and recommending her top Christmas picks for children. And don't forget, if you're not able to join us then, then you can listen again directly from our website. And Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. I need a job. I need a job.